We are in the midst of a uh, sermon series that was brought about um, not just by the political chaos of our times, but by the very present Christian component of that political chaos, okay? And the goal is to uh, dig through our own hearts, our own history, our own faith, and uproot anything that is not of God that is related to some of these distortions uh, and impairments to the witness of God that we see in the church today. And I want to affirm again that we are addressing these, not pointing the finger at someone else, some other movement. We are talking about us. We are talking about our family. We are talking about the evangelical church in America, which we call home. This is us, okay? Um, but we still think that it's worthwhile to take inventory, to go back to the beginning, to, uh, to ask the simple question like Jesus' disciples on the night that he was betrayed, is it me, Lord? Right? Just the humility to let God search our hearts. And so last week we talked uh, uh, specifically about the will to power. And about how, as Christians, we have to navigate the way we think about power in a different way. And we have to recognize that what government is called by God to do, which is maintain order and restrain evil through coercion, right, through the sword, is not a tool that we should use to bring about the kingdom. Okay. This morning we're going to talk about freedom. And I don't know if this is surprising to you, but freedom is a primary part of our political conversation today. In fact, it's probably been a primary, maybe even most primary part of American political conversation since there was an America to have it, right? Freedom is one of those words that we associate with America. Now, freedom is also a central idea to Christianity. Before we turn to the text that we're going to be in this morning, just reflect on this. In Luke chapter 4, at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, he comes into his hometown of Nazareth, and he's invited to teach at his local synagogue. He opens the scroll to a passage in Isaiah, and he begins to read. And he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And the primary thing that the Spirit of the Lord is upon this person in Isaiah to do is to set at liberty the captives and to declare the year of jubilee. Okay. Liberty is freedom. Jubilee is a release. It's a setting free. Jesus rolls up the scroll after reading this and says, Today these words have been fulfilled in your hearing. If you want to understand the mission purpose of Jesus, if you want to understand what Jesus has come to do, you cannot do it without the language of freedom. But again, that makes weighing these two things, where they are alike and where they're not alike, more important, not less important. Okay. And so, what I'd like to do is draw your attention to a place where freedom is referenced in a context that helps us to feel out Christian freedom as well as push against some of the misunderstandings of our time. And to do that, I'd like you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. If 
you have a Bible this morning, turning to 1 Peter chapter 2, um, that is one of the later letters of the New Testament. So if you know where the Gospels are, move all the way to the right. If you hit Revelation, you've gone too far, but just by a little bit. Okay. Come back and find Peter's letter, known as 1 Peter. Now, I want to remind you where we finished last week. We saw that God's will for us as the church, wherever we are, whenever we are, is to live as exiles, and a very specific type of exile, like Jeremiah told those living in Babylon, they were to settle down and to live in this foreign territory, and they were to maintain their identity as foreigners, They weren't to be assimilated. They also weren't to overthrow or seek to overpower uh, these foreigners, but instead they were to seek the peace of the city. They were to be uh, an element of good working for the sake of their foreign neighbors, despite the fact, remember, that Babylon was also not just their neighbors, but their conquerors, right, who had mistreated them, who had cruelly defeated them, who had dragged them off and enslaved them, but Jeremiah says, seek the peace of the city. I want you to notice here in 1 Peter chapter 2 that Peter picks up from the same place. Listen to what he says in verse 11. Beloved, that's us as Christians, the church, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. This is also how he opens the letter back in his greeting. It's how he identifies us as those who are dispersed. Okay. And so he's thinking in the same mindset He's speaking in the same place as if we are foreigners like those who Jeremiah wrote to in Jeremiah chapter 29. Our text for this morning, though, begins in verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Let's pray. God, my goal this morning is more than just that you would pare back misunderstandings, misconstruences, and foreign ideas of freedom that are inappropriate for those who follow you. Instead, Lord, my prayer is that you would, through this morning, help us to encounter the depth of the freedom that you offer us in Christ. Help us to get in tune with the fact that you have given us something greater and not less than the American dream. And that you have given us a freedom that runs deeper and rights that are less inalienable, and uh, that you have given us dignity that is more true. And I pray, Lord, that that would stir us on to the witness that you've called us to, to be your people, the subjects of your kingdom. In Jesus' name. Amen. It's interesting, isn't it? 
Here, if you want to sum up the paragraph that we read, the best you could do is the verb be subject, right? Or if you have an older translation, submit. Okay, and specifically to authorities. Okay. But what's interesting is we find freedom right at the center of it. Did you notice what we were reading there in verse 15? For this is the will of God that you should, uh, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And then in 16 he says, live as people who are free. Do you feel the tension there this morning? Be subject to all human authorities. Live as a free person. Do you feel the tension there this morning? As Americans, we go, wait a minute, how do you do that? How do those two things fit together? Isn't freedom mean I am subject to no one? Don't we want to wave the banner of the yellow flag, you know, with the snake? Don't tread on me. But the word here, to be subject, literally means to put yourself under. How do these things fit together? Let, rem let me remind you as well that Peter clearly doesn't distinguish here between good, God-honoring, righteous authorities and evil ones. As Peter pens this letter, Caesar Nero is on the throne. The worst thing to happen to the first century church who burned Christians to light his parties and blamed a fire in Rome on the Christian community so he could increase the hatred of Christians. In fact, this same emperor that here he says we are to honor eventually puts Peter to death. He doesn't say here, submit to good authorities. What do we do here? What do we do with this? The danger is, in what I'm supposed to, or what I feel the need to convey this morning, what I, what I read in the Word and what we'll try and show you, is that it would come off as some sort of failed parental reverse psychology. Where, you know, as a parent... I say to my child, well, the way for you to be the most free is just to obey my every word. Right? If we read this as a text from the emperor who says the role of a citizen and a subject is to honor and to fear and to obey me, and that's for your good. Right? We would question that. But remember, Peter is writing as a persecuted Christian. Remember, in fact, that he's writing to an audience that he refers to as exiles and sojourners. But that doesn't really help us, does it? It just increases the tension we feel as modern Americans. What is the American response to bad government? It's our founding moment, right? It's revolution. It's overthrow. Why? Because of freedom. Because of the importance of freedom. Because of the value of freedom. Because of the truth of freedom. What is going on here? The first thing we need to understand is that the freedom here is a real freedom. Like I said, it is, it is the anthem that Jesus brings this idea of freedom. It's where he starts his ministry. And as we'll see today, this is a common concept in the New Testament to speak of us as being free or freed 
or having freedom. Okay. It's not a small idea in Christianity. It's a central one. In fact, here we need to recognize that even the way that Peter calls Christians to be subject is unique as a Christian perspective. Not because other people didn't make the same call. You can open up the Stoic philosophers. You can look at the writings of Aristotle. Plato really believed in authority. Okay? And so he called people to be subject to those over them. And actually all of those groups rooted that in the way things are. The way the world is, the way the world operates, this is the way things are. Some people, Plato said, are made for freedom and others are made for slavery. But I want you to notice some things that are easy for us to miss but are very poignant in the mouth of a first century Christian under the Roman Empire. The first thing I want you to notice is what he says in verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. I'm pretty sure every one of your translations uses that word institution or something like it this morning, and I honestly have no idea why. Because the word is every human creature. You know how in the Gospel of Mark, when we get to the Great Commission, Jesus sends his disciples out and says, go and preach the gospel to all creatures, right? Which St. Francis loved, and so he preached to the squirrels and the birds. Okay. That's the same word that's here. The only other way it's translated outside of the word creature in Mark is as creation, all of creation, okay? So read this again and, and think of both of those words. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human creature. Okay. Or for every human creation. Why is this significant? Because as he goes on, he's going to identify the emperor here, but he identifies the emperor explicitly as merely a man. And you go, well, yeah. But not in Rome. Right? Who is the first Caesar? Caesar Augustus, the august one, the divine one. You know the proclamation that Jesus is Lord has a parallel in the Roman Empire? Caesar is Lord. Do you feel how politically weighted that is when Christians proclaim Jesus is Lord and then refuse to offer incense at the altar of the emperor and therefore lose their lives? Okay. So whatever we're going to talk about in terms of freedom here, we cannot reduce it to some sort of spiritual freedom that has no political import. Okay, But... Peter here, he undeifies the powers that be. They're just human creatures, or at best, human creations, which is where we get the word institutions, right? An institution is a man-made system of community. And if you remember from last November when we walked through kind of a big theology of politics, we talked about the fact that that is as God intended it. If you go back to Genesis 9, God has built us to make community, and when we make community, we make ways of operating as a community, and that's all fine. But when we are subject, as Christians or as anyone else, the first thing we need to keep in mind is that we are subject to human beings and human institutions. There's another little 
nuanced jab here. It's at the end in verse 17. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Not fear the emperor. He's not the end-all, be-all power that you need to concern yourself with. You should honor him. Remember what Jesus says when he's handed a coin with Caesar's inscription? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but only to God what is God's. When he does not say, fear God and the emperor here, he makes a categorical distinction. And the truth is, both of those ideas circulate around the concept of freedom. When he says that we are to live as free people here, one of the things that that frees us from is the idolatry of power, or politics, or emperor, or government. Nietzsche himself, the prophet of power, who sought to envision a world where God was dead, recognized that human beings must worship something. And so in the absence of God, it would be power and politics that would rule the day. And he was prescient. He predicted rightly. But that's not a new thing. That's not a new thing. It goes back, as we see here, to the Roman Empire when Paul calls for subjection, or excuse me, Peter calls for subjection or submission here, when he calls us to put ourselves under, it's not because they are divine. It's not because they are the only salvation and our only hope. It's not because at the end of the line, they are the only ones who can get anything done. It's not because if we don't obey them, we no longer exist. It's none of those ideas. And so related to that, there's also a freedom from fear. And you see this in the New Testament church, don't you? How do they handle those in power? Clearly with honor, just like Peter does here. Read through the book of Acts. Listen to the way that Peter addresses King uh, Agrippa, or where he addresses Felix, or even the way he deals with the leaders of his own religion, the Sanhedrin. And it's with honor. It's with respect, but it's clearly also without fear. We see no groveling. We see no begging for life. We see no deals being made in back corners. We see no wringing of hands. In fact, the first time the early church is threatened by an authority, Peter and John have just healed a man. A man who's been lame from birth and is in his 40th year He's lived his entire life without the ability to walk. And Peter says to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. And everybody knows this guy because he's been begging alms at the temple every day. And they see him now running around with the disciples and you know, yelling, I can walk, I can walk, I can walk. So Peter stands up and he preaches and he says, look, it's not by our power or by our piety that this man has been made whole, but in the name of Jesus Christ, and he preaches the gospel to this crowd. And he's arrested by the religious leaders. And they say, look, don't talk about Jesus anymore. And respectfully and honorably, they say, whether it is right for us to obey God 
or men. You decide. But as for us, we cannot but preach of what we have seen and heard. And then they go and they have a prayer meeting. And in the prayer meeting, they read from Psalm 2, which we just did a few weeks ago. Why do the nations rage? Right? A tension between the Messiah and the governments of the world. And they read from that psalm and they say, just as the powers that be in Herod and Pilate and the Jews stood against you, Jesus, and put you to death, so also they stand against your mission here today. And then what do they pray for? Boldness. Therefore, give us boldness so that we may proclaim your word as we ought. That is clearly a type of freedom, isn't it? The freedom from fear. We can add a significant one to the list. And I would suggest to you that it's probably the primary one in the New Testament. That is the freedom from sin. Here he says that by design, governments are supposed to be the upholder and promoter of the good and the restrainer or the punisher of evil. But the problem is, and you have the parking tickets to prove it, you don't always do rightly. And that's a real issue. The problem is not always, as I hope we all know, that the government is unjust. But oftentimes, so are the people. And we are just as capable as calling for rebellion or overturn or even for justice for unjust reasons. As a cloak for our own darkness. As he says here, we should not use our freedom, verse 16, as a cover-up for evil. Rights can be a very good thing. It doesn't mean they can't be used for selfishness, for exploitation. As soon as we legalize rights, we cultivate loopholes. And as soon as we cultivate loopholes, people use them for their own advantage to the disadvantage of others. That's real. And let me point out something that is very clearly a part of all of your hearts. You are, by nature, a rebel. It wouldn't matter how good the government is, how right their position is, we are bent towards rebellion. Okay? And so when Jesus says, whoever the Son sets free shall be free indeed. And he goes on and he says, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The Jews of his day go, wait a minute. We're already free. Which is a weird thing to say for an oppressed people living under a Roman government. But nonetheless, they push back and they say, we're already free. And he says, I tell you the truth, that anyone who sins is a slave to sin. There's a difference between saying, it is good to obey the government, and finding in yourself the ability to obey the government. And it's easy to forget that when we use this overlay of a power structure. Because then we are mostly concerned about their problems and have a hard time looking at our own. But we can own all of these things and still bottom out in our American understanding of freedom. Primarily for us, 
Freedom is a concept of freedom from. Being free from the interference, the imposition, and the evil of others. Now, I would suggest to you that at the heart of that freedom is a clear Christian freedom. As Christianity was proclaimed, as we see the gospel go out and cross every barrier of difference, of status, of race, of gender, of these types of things, no surprise, it cultivates a fully orbed sense of human dignity for all. You can trace a direct line from the reality and the power of the gospel and its teaching in the New Testament to a lot of the rights and battles for rights and the increasing of freedom throughout history. Why did the American founders write, we hold this truth to be self-evident that all men are created equal? Where did they get that idea from? Like I said, Plato didn't have it. He said all men inherently are not created equal. They drew it from this book. They drew it from Christianity. In fact, if you're into sociologists and you're into the study of history, a sociologist last year or the year before by the name of Robert Woodbury released a study where he studied across the world developing cultures and found that the most significant determinant in modern present tense democracy was the existence of 20th century and 19th century Protestant missionaries. Now, as you can imagine, that is a controversial statement, especially when missionaries are generally bound up with the expansion of the British Empire, right, and the reality of those things. But here's what's amazing about his study. Because missionaries were controlled by the empires who let them operate in their field, very clear boundaries of influence were drawn. What that means is we can compare this circle and how it turned out today to the circle next to it where missionaries weren't allowed to be. And the contrast is a staggering one. And it's not just because of the power of the gospel. It's because Christians were the ones who taught everybody how to read and write. William Carey, the father of modern missions in India, he is the one who translated all of the ancient Hindu documents into writing. They were the ones who, who created education in these places and developed schools. But they did all of these things because they believed in the dignity of human beings. And even when America hasn't lived up to its destiny, because that hypocrisy has been present all the way from the beginning, all men are created equal, except for those who have a particular color of skin, except for those who own no property, except for those who are women instead of men. But every time it's been critiqued, it's been critiqued from the same place, from the same dignity, from the same truth. There is a direct line that can be traced from our understanding of human rights and freedom to the Christian scriptures and to what Jesus accomplished and is accomplishing. But, There is a deeper freedom. It's not a freedom from. And that's kind of where we're starting to bottom out as a culture. A freedom from 
the opinions of others, from the politics of others, a freedom that now is starting to be a manifest autonomy. I have my own life. No one can tell me what to do. There's no such thing as right or wrong except my right or my wrong. And you just need to leave me alone. As well as an autonomy that says what's most important in my life is me. You know, the Bill of Rights is very similar to the Ten Commandments. But there's one very significant difference. The Bill of Rights focuses on us and our rights. The Ten Commandments focuses on not imposing on the rights of others. The orientation is different. And so, for many of us, freedom is a justification to do nothing. Because we don't owe anyone anyone. Anyone anything. Freedom is the freedom to pursue my ends, the pursuit of my life and my happiness. And you have the same freedom, but it has nothing to do with me. But here's the thing. This is what I want to show you in the New Testament. Every time the New Testament talks about freedom, slavery is not far behind. And the order matters there. I'm not saying every time we find freedom, it's juxtaposed with slavery. Stop being a slave and be free. No. It's, you've been set free, so be a slave. Let me show you. First off, the one that we already talked about, freedom from sin. Listen to this in Romans chapter 6. I want to draw your attention to two verses here. Look at what he says in verse 7. For the one who died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we'll also live with him. Look back at verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. When we use the word redemption as Christians, that involves freedom, just like it did in the book of Exodus. God redeems his people out of slavery in Exodus. But I want you to notice how he continues here as he continues on in verse 17. Actually, verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Now, I think that's probably an enhanced provocation of our culture and our time. You know, Paul lives in a world of slaves. He's talking to people who have come to Jesus being slaves of another person. Maybe it's not as big of a deal. But it is freedom from one thing, not freedom from all things. In fact, it's a freedom from one thing so that you can be something else. And that's really at the heart of Christian freedom. True freedom in the idea of Christian teaching, in the idea of the Bible, is not freedom from 
things, it's ultimately freedom to be what you are. And that's that affirmation we were talking about of human dignity. Freedom to be recognized as created in the image of God. Freedom to be recognized as equal to all other human beings, aside from power or status, position or wealth. But freedom is always freedom unto, and when Jesus says, whom the Son sets free, you will be free indeed, that's not a, you no longer have to deal with these people, or you no longer have to deal with these issues, now you can define your own destiny. No, that's actually where the slavery is. Okay. At, like his audience, the Jews, but we're free people. No. If you are a slave of sin, your choice is gone. You have become not what you were to be, but what you have sold yourself into. It's a simple illustration, but consider a fish. Arguing for the right for fish to live on land has nothing to do with freedom. Just death. Where is a fish the most free? Where it can truly be a fish in the water. And so freedom can never be an escape from the imposition of the will of God because God made you, he knows what's best for you, like we talked about earlier. But notice here, to turn away from and be freed from sin is to turn unto and make make yourself a slave of God. Now that's one place. And let me tell you as a Bible teacher, that's not enough to make a point. But let me show it to you again. Okay, this time I want you to turn just a few letters over to Corinthians, specifically 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Now let's look here at verse 17. Now the Lord is spirit... And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. I don't have time to unpack that and put it in its context, but let me just remind you that if you believe in Jesus Christ, you have become a temple of the Spirit. So where is the Spirit of the Lord? In you. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. But right after this, as he continues on with his argument, I want you to notice what Paul says in chapter 4. Look at what he says in verse 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sakes. Is the Spirit of the Lord in Paul? Yeah. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And what does Paul do with that freedom? He enslaves himself to people. And if you didn't catch it, the word there for servants is the same word for slaves. In the other passages, it's doulos all around. Let's just look at one more, this time from the book of Galatians. And we'll return to this chapter in a few weeks and focus here as we get back to our study through Galatians. But as you may remember, freedom is a major issue in the book of Galatians. Paul's concern is that they would enslave themselves to the law and forsake their freedom in Jesus Christ. And so notice what he says in chapter 5, verse 1. For freedom Christ has set us free. 
Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Pretty clear. Freedom matters. It's worth fighting for. It shouldn't be given up. But then notice what he says in verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but for love serve one another. And this is the one that's the most invisible, but the word there is enslave yourself. It's very strong. It's not just bring a glass of water and an extra basket of bread. Okay? It's not wait upon one another. It's, it's the big word for slavery as a verb. What should we do with our freedom? Serve God. Serve one another. And then, going back to 1 Peter, subject ourselves. Let me enlighten you on something going back to 1 Peter. In verse 16, your translation says, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Two things. One, the language there for servant, again, is the word for slave, not the more general word for service. But more importantly, the two times that it says live there, live as people in the beginning of 16, and then living as servants at the end of 16, the word live isn't there. It's not in the Greek. It's been provided by the translator to make sense of a sentence that doesn't have a verb, which is a common problem in Greek. However, there is a verb, and we find that verb back in 13. It's be subject. Okay, the reason he doesn't use a verb there is because he's already laid it out verses earlier. So listen to what this sentence actually says. It says, be subject as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but subject as servants of God. Do you hear how that's the exact same cadence we just read in Galatians? Do not use your freedom as a cover-up for sin, but rather enslave yourselves to one another. And here's the thing. As big as freedom might be as a New Testament vocabulary word, subject is greater. Think of it. And it's not just to government. In fact, notice what he's about to say in this chapter. Look at what he says in verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters. Okay, look at chapter 3, verse 1. Likewise, wives, like servants, be subject to your own husbands. And I could do the same thing from Ephesians, where Paul lays out and says, wives be subject to husband, children be subject to parents, slaves be subject to masters. I could do it from Colossians. I could do it from Titus chapter 2, where it hits all of these same points. Be subject is primary and significant in the New Testament. But what I want you to understand this morning is that that is set in the context of freedom, just like it is here. He says we're to be subject how? To be subject as free people. What is unique about the way Christians are subject to governing authorities? It's that they do so willingly and freely. That's the difference. That they do so willingly and freely. Okay, now this we've got to pause and we have to unpack. What I'm suggesting to you this morning 
is that we as Christians put ourselves completely under authorities because we are completely beyond them. That we are so free that we can freely subject ourselves. I don't know about you, but growing up in the 80s, one of my favorite childhood films was The Labyrinth. Right? I don't know how that makes you feel. I know it's a complicated issue. But for me, it's a very soft and tender, nostalgic reality. It's a movie that I can quote and sing the whole way through without a problem. For you, it's probably The Princess Bride, and I'll never understand you. Okay. But to the end of the movie, Sarah Connor, not Connor. I think it is Connor. That's super weird. But anyways, the main character, Sarah, she has this epiphany. She doesn't have to listen to the Goblin King at all. And that the whole spell of his demands and everything are broken, and she just says, you have no power over me. And the whole thing just crumbles. That's freedom. But notice, it's not freedom from. We don't go to the governing authorities and say, look, you're merely men. And I serve a different king, therefore you have no authority over me and I can do whatever I want. We freely subject ourselves. Just like a wife does for a husband. Why? Because a wife is inferior to the man? Of course not. Read the beginning of Genesis. God created the male and female in his image. The equality and dignity is there. In fact, here is what's so different from the Stoic household codes and the household codes in the New Testament. The Stoic ones never address the lower. They tell men how to be men, but not women. They tell masters how to be masters, but not servants. They tell rulers how to be rulers, but not subjects. And Paul speaks to the wives and he says, freely and willingly be subject to your husband. One of the reasons Paul even has to say this, surprise, surprise, is because the dignity and the value and the worth and the freedom that comes in Christ is so great that it suddenly presents the question. Have you ever read that super strange passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 about head coverings? Where apparently there are women who in the congregation are praying with an uncovered head, and Paul is explaining that doesn't make any sense. You should cover your heads. Why are women doing this? Okay, first off, why would women cover their head anyways? <laughs> because of the angels, right? Thanks, thanks, Dallas. That's what Paul tells us too. It's a lot of help, isn't it? <laughs> but in the culture, and this was true not just in Christianity, but also in all of the worship that went on in Corinth, it was usual for a woman to cover her head when she prayed, okay? To be adorned in that way. And apparently, in this new Corinthian church, that is being set aside. Why? Because women and men both worship God, are both filled with the Spirit, can both be used by Him, and are equal. And I could do this so many places in the New Testament. Think of Paul's example. He says, don't I have rights as an apostle to get my income from the churches I serve, to bring along a believing wife like Peter does? He uses the word rights. He says, don't I have those rights? And he says, but I lay down my rights so that I might save some. What makes Christian freedom free at the deepest level 
is that we freely put ourselves under those in authority. And as it says here, we do it for the Lord's sake. Now, listen, if you're uncomfortable with the household code, you know, husbands and wives, parents and children, masters and slaves, and Ephesians and Colossians, go back and read them and look at how many times Jesus is referenced. Slaves, serve your master as unto the Lord. Wives, respect your husband as Christ. Every time Jesus is brought into the mix. Why? Because there is something uniquely Christian. There's something unique about following Jesus. There's something about, unique about what Jesus has done that changes the way that we view authority. Here's the obvious question. When we look at the life of Jesus Christ, do we see a man who was subject? And the answer is unabashedly yes. In fact, the first time we see it of Jesus is when he's a little kid at the age of 12 and he gets accidentally left behind in Jerusalem because he's theologically blowing the minds of all of the religious leaders in the temple and his parents lose track of him. And they pull him aside after they come back and they find him and, and he explains, he's like, I've got to be about my father's business, which is a weird thing for a 12-year-old to say to his dad who is reprimanding him for doing something else. But you know what it says next in the book of Luke? And Jesus returned home with them and was subject to them. Will you think on that for just a second? The God of the universe becomes a man and becomes a slave. And you know where I'm going. Isn't that exactly what Philippians 2 says? Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who did not consider his equality with God as something to be held on to, but came in the likeness of men and made himself a servant, obedient even to the point of death on a cross. Now it goes on to say, therefore God has highly exalted him. And I think sometimes we, reread that, we misread that and we think that the goal of Jesus becoming a slave was his elevation. But it's not. He was already there, right? He was already the name above all names. He was already God and had all of the power and worth and glory of God. What's different at the other end of it? Us. What does it say in Mark chapter 10? For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, but to give his life as a ransom for many. Christians are subject to those in authority over us, not because those authorities are ultimate, not even because those authorities are ultimately right. We are subject to them because we know the truth, because we've encountered reality and we want them to know it as well. When he talks about wives here being subject to their husbands, he speaks specifically to women who are married to non-Christian men who don't have the same conscience or convictions. He says, be subject to them so that you might win them without a word. One of the things that's so powerful about the last hours of Jesus' life is the way that he navigates being falsely accused, being taken advantage of for political ends. He's subject. 
It says, as we saw last week in Colossians, that in doing so, he disarmed the powers and principalities. You remember the end of The Wizard of Oz? Oz is a humbug. And that's what we discover at the end of the Gospels as well. The powers and principalities aren't all that powerful. They can't even keep a dead man dead. Okay? Right here, we're swirling about the freedom that's being talked about here. We freely subject ourselves for the Lord's sake because it is God's will. In fact, notice what it says in verse 15. This is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. What did we see? Seek the peace of the city where you live in Jeremiah. And here he says, we should be about doing good. And notice it in its context. Verse 14, governors is sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good, you. We are to be those who are commended by government. Does that mean government will always commend us? Absolutely not. Does this mean that we silence our mouths when injustice is being done? Of course not. Read your Bible. This orientation to government stems from end to end. That doesn't mean that the church was silenced on the injustice of its times. But when Peter and John are arrested, do they spit in the face of the police officers? Do they plot and seek to overthrow the governments of this world? Do they justify violence for the sake of overturning more violence? It's different. It's handled with freedom, with an open hand. In fact, even when we disobey, we disobey for different reasons. And this is where I think this becomes a very important issue for us, church. Because if the only reason we disobey authorities is because of our rights and because of our freedoms, we fall short of being the witness known as the church. If we subject ourselves to the punishment of unjust powers, and again, read Peter, he knows that's who he's talking about. The majority of 1 Peter is about suffering when you do good. What did we just learn? We're to be those who live as doing good. And he goes on and he says, look, even if you do good and you suffer for it, it is better to suffer doing the will of God. He knows all this. It's all there. But the truth is, with freedom, at least in America, has come entitlement. And so I'd like to call in a different voice. I'd like to phone a friend. I'd like to give you a different perspective in a very different place. I'd like you to encounter the freedom that we're talking about this morning in a place that there is no political freedom for Christians. I want to read you the words of a pastor of early reign covenant church in China who was arrested two years ago and is still arrested along with a good deal of his congregation. This letter he had written in advance knowing that he could any day be arrested and to be published worldwide if it happened. And I'd encourage you to read the whole thing. But I just want to read you this one paragraph. This is from Pastor Wang Yi. He says, I hope God uses me by means of first losing my personal freedom to tell those who have deprived me of my personal freedom that there is an authority higher than their authority 
and that there is a freedom that they cannot restrain. A freedom that fills the church of the crucified and risen Jesus Christ. My question for us this morning is, do we know that freedom? Does Wang Yi sound afraid? Does he seem like a conservationist of his own needs and his own rights? He wants his oppressors, who he knows are wicked, and constantly reminds them that their oppression is wicked, to know the same gospel that saved them. And he knows that he has a certain inalienable right that goes deeper than even the government of China can deny. It's the one that John tells us about in John chapter 1, verse 12. To these he gave the rights to become the sons of God, those who believe in him. Let me read it to you again one more time. He says, I hope God uses me by means of first losing my personal freedom to tell those who have deprived me of my personal freedom that there is an authority higher than their authority and that there is a freedom that they cannot restrain, a freedom that fills the church of the crucified and risen Jesus Christ. And so again, we freely put ourselves under authorities because we are beyond them. We're not truly and fully and completely part of their jurisdiction anymore. Their sentences will be appealed and overturned. But that also means that simultaneously we live in a way that seeks to please our one and only king. And what does Peter say is the will of God here? That we be subject to authorities. Now, those of you who have talked with me at length of politics know that I'm, I'm no promoter of the Anabaptist approach to these things. But this is what Yoder, one of the great voices of the Anabaptists, calls the revolution of subjugation. It's unique. And I want to remind you again that the freedom that has come about, that really does have its narrative in the proclamation of the gospel in Christianity, did not happen in a world where these freedoms already existed and were recognized? How was it that the church led to a world that had more freedoms to enjoy? Because they knew this deeper freedom. And they lived, like Pastor Yi, in a way that made everybody go, oh my gosh, that is true freedom. Let's pray. Father, forgive us where we've reduced your role in our life to a defender of our freedoms as we define them. Where freedoms have been incorporated in just to another way to exalt autonomy and the human self. Forgive us for the places where we have settled for a freedom that recognizes the dignity that we have in Jesus Christ, but not enough to willingly lay it aside to seek and to save the lost. God, I pray that you would recalibrate our minds 
that our minds would be like the one in Christ, who does not consider our freedoms or our rights or our qualities as something to be held on to, but freely lays them down, all the time testifying to the truth, all the time faithful and obedient to our true Lord, but all the time with a heart for those who don't understand, with a heart for those who continue to abuse or perpetuate injustice or oppress or lord it over us. And Lord, we don't know what's coming in this country. But we know that you are king. And we thank you for what you've done for us in Jesus Christ. And we ask that we would live it out as if it were true. That we would make it manifest. We just want to proclaim that in Christ Jesus this morning we are free. And if the Son has set us free, then we are free indeed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.